And at the start of tonight, I want to do something uh, just very briefly, a little bit different, slightly interactive. I want to ask a question. I want to ask, what kind of church do you want to belong to? If you could use one adjective, I'm going to get you to turn in pairs in just a moment, pairs or threes. What kind of church do you want to belong to? And you're allowed sort of one adjective, and then we're going to call out a few of these and just uh, reflect, see what comes out before we dive into our passage. Does that sound good? So turn to a neighbor, jump into a three or a pair, twos, just as easy. We're just going to take sort of 30 seconds on that, okay? So on your marks, get set, go. Ten more seconds. Okay. Let's come back. Okay. Now, we can just do some, some quick fire things. You know, what kind of church do you want to belong to? Let's hear some words, some adjectives. A loving church, like it. Thank you. Shh. Authentic church, love it. A generous church, thank you. An inclusive church, thank you. What? Relevant church. Brave church, safe church. Captivated by Jesus church. A what? A running church. (laughs) Growing church. I like it. I like it. A righteous church. A holy church. (laughs) My exercise hasn't quite worked. I was hoping we'd throw out all these adjectives and you wouldn't say the key word, which I want to focus on tonight, which is a holy church. But annoyingly, you're all too good and you nailed it. A holy church. All these things are great. A loving church, an inclusive church, a generous church, a brave church. All of these things we want. But actually, isn't it funny how it doesn't automatically come to mind. It was suggested later on. A holy church. But the thing is, that's exactly the kind of church that Jesus wants. That's exactly the church that he's calling for in this letter to Thyatira. Jesus wants his church, wants his bride to be holy. Holy, that's what we're going to look at tonight. I've got a couple of verses I just want to pull up. David on the desk, debuting tonight. He's going to pull up 2 Corinthians 11, something or other. It's a big debut, Dave. We don't often do. Yes, my man. Give it up for the day. Yes. 
just sort of looked that challenge in the eye and said, I will take you down. And he did. Thank you. This is Paul writing to the church. He says, I am jealous for you, for the people of God, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. This is Paul's vision of the church, the church, the bride he wants to present to Jesus Christ. Well, then in Ephesians 5, let's have the the next verse. It says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. Jesus is committed to his church. The disciples who followed after him were committed to his church. We are called to be committed to the church, committed to one another, working together to present ourselves, the bride of Jesus Christ, to him pure, without stain, without blemish, without wrinkle. It sounds like a sort of Isle of Eulay ad, but this is what Jesus wants. He wants purity. He wants holiness. And he wants it because God is holy. 2 Peter 1 verse 16 simply says, Be holy, for I I'm holy. We're the people of God. We're created in his image. We're called to live like him, to look like him. And God is holy. But it's not just that. It's also because the call to be holy is the greatest blessing we can offer the world out there. The call to be holy is a call to be radically distinct, a call to be different, A call to live as salt and light in a world that isn't those two things. It's a call to stand out. And it's a call that the world desperately needs, that the world is desperately hungry for. The world longs for something that is is different, that is authentic, that stands up for what it believes, that lives true to its convictions. The world actually longs for, whether it knows it or not, it actually longs for a holy church. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That's what he's calling for here in this letter. You know, I remember at university I used to pray uh, once a week, just one lunchtime, um, just to pray, intercede for non-Christian friends and family, which I had a few, only Christian in my family, to pray that they come to know God's love and one of us, one of our members was going on holiday with, uh, with non-Christian bunch of friends and obviously the temptations, potential that that brings. But I remember her saying this thing and it stuck with me, it stuck with me ever since. And she said how someone had said to her, encouraged her to just hold fast on that holiday, to stick to her testimony, to stick to Jesus because they'd said to her, the greatest gift you can give your friends is your holiness. The greatest gift we can give our friends, that we can give the world out there, 
as individuals and as a church is our holiness. So let's look at this letter. Revelation, the letter to Thyatira. I want to look at just three things that I think come out of this passage calling us to be holy. The first is this. Be holy because Jesus is holy. What would someone look like who lived a pure, righteous, holy life, who never thought anything wrong, who never did, said anything wrong? What would they look like? Well, they'd look like Jesus. They'd look like Jesus as he walked the earth, as he lived that sinless, spotless, blemish-free life. But they'd also look like Jesus now. If, if people could have seen Jesus in his glory when he walked the earth, like the disciples did on the mount where he was transfigured, and they saw his true divine beauty and glory, then they would have fallen down and worshipped him then and there. But he hid himself, he cloaked himself in his humility. But here we get an image of who Jesus is, of who Christ is, and it begins here and it ends here. It always begins with Jesus and ends with Jesus. So let's fix our eyes on him at the start, looking at these words. He writes in verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God. The beginning of the book of Revelation, he introduced himself as the Son of Man. That was his favorite term when he walked the earth, when he was clothed, cloaked in humility, when, he, when he'd taken on flesh. He was unrecognizably divine. He just looked human. He, he, was empath- he was saying, I'm one of you. I've taken on flesh. I am human. I am the Son of Man. Here, I am the Son of God. He is claiming that divinity for himself, that he is God. It goes on, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Jesus is holy. What does a holy man look like in glory? What does Jesus look like right now? Well, I can tell you, for one thing, his eyes look like fire. I don't know if you want to get on the end of those eyes in some sort of staring contest. Eyes of fire. Eyes that can see through space-time, see through matter, just cut into your mind, your heart, discern your thoughts. Eyes that see everything, before which everything is laid bare, that he knows everything. He says in this letter, I know your deeds. I know, what you're do- I, I know every hair on your head. I see. My eyes are fire. I am holy. My feet are made of burnished bronze. Why does it choose that? Well, bronze back then was the toughest metal they knew of. A lot of weapons of war were actually made with bronze. We read it now and you think, bronze, that's rubbish. Why do they have bronze? Get yourself some steel, mate. Uh, they didn't have that. They had bronze. So this is the toughest metal they know of. Polished up, just refined, pure. It speaks of feet that are going to be unmoving, that are planted, that aren't going anywhere. It speaks of feet that are coming in judgment. The utensils on the high altar when they would make sacrifice were made of bronze. That spoke of sacrifice. That spoke of judgment. These feet are going to be the feet that come back. Later in Revelation, we read, Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back as judge. 
He's coming back in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. He's coming back as commander and chief of heaven's armies. And his feet are bronze. And they are going to tread the winepress of God's wrath. He came once in weakness. He came in humility. That's what the world thinks. Do you ever find that? The world kind of thinks, oh, Christianity, a bit lame, isn't it? A bit weak, slightly embarrassing. And admittedly, a lot of the things the church does are a little embarrassing. We won't go there. But Jesus, this isn't a picture of Jesus, little Jesus, meek and mild. This is Jesus as he is today. This is Jesus, Lord and King, reigning, ruling, all-powerful, all-knowing, seeing everything, coming back as judge. This is Jesus, one to be feared. Guys, we've got nothing to be embarrassed about with Jesus. Nothing to be embarrassed about at all. We can be proud of Jesus. He is King of kings. He is Lord. He is creator of all that is. It's everything else that needs to get in line with him. If they could only see him as he really is. And this is the guy who created the great white shark, for goodness sake. And you know what I mean? I sometimes dwell on certain things and think, my goodness, Jesus made that, the, shark, the great white, to the world that says, oh, it's a bit lame, it's a bit soft, it's a bit Jesus in a dress. It's like, no, mate, no. The great white shark for you. This is Jesus. He's fearful. He's holy. He's all-knowing. And he calls us to be holy simply because he is holy. And we're his people. And we're made in his image. We're his church. We're his bride. And he wants us to match up That's what he's come to do. He's drawing near. He gives these people an image of who he is. And having introduced himself, it's like, oh gosh. You know, they would have heard, Thyatira, they would have heard the other letters. They would have seen how Jesus introduces himself to them. And they would have read like, gosh, then he goes on to say some quite full on stuff. You know, that he starts with them like eyes of fire, um, feet of burnished bronze. Oh gosh, what's coming? You know, he encourages them to be holy because he is holy. But we also, second point, we should be holy because we're called to be holy. And that should be enough. We are called to be holy. That's Jesus' call. What's his expectation of your life, of my life? It's to be a disciple. It's to walk in obedience. It's to be holy. Because he is. And because we're called to be. Jesus starts reflecting on, on what he knows of them. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds. The one whose eyes are like fire, sees everything. It's like, I, I know everything about you. Stop trying to hide it. I know your deeds. He starts with the good news, the commendation. This classic sort of feedback technique from Jesus, for any management sort of gurus out there. He's, you know, I know your deeds. Your love. Your love, your faith. I, I know the good works you're doing. I know you're feeding the poor. You know, I know you're taking care of the, the poor amongst you, perhaps taking in the homeless. I know you're getting out on the streets. You're sharing the love. You're, you're evangelizing. What would you say to us? I know, Cindy's. I know you do the homeless shelter. That's fantastic. I know that you've got plans to reach out to befriend the elderly and the community. I love that. I see your love, he says. I see your faith that you're holding on to me, that you're persevering, 
that you're keeping going, even in the face of a hostile culture that doesn't believe, that doesn't love the Bible, that doesn't believe in me, you're holding on, you're persevering. I see that. I see your love, I see your faith, I see your service. That you'll put others first. You're living the right way, you're doing the Christian thing. You're serving. I see your perseverance. No matter what comes against you, you just keep going. You set your face like flint and you just keep going. Because you know where you're headed. I see that. And that you are now doing more than you did at first. You know, the trajectory is good. Thyatira, nice one. I see it. He commends them. They're doing what they're called to do. And then verse 20, that word. Nevertheless. Not what you really want to hear, is it, from someone with eyes of fire? Nevertheless. And he goes on to challenge them. He goes on to correct them. He goes on to confront them with their sin. Why? Because he loves them. And he wants them to walk into all his plans for them. He wants them to walk into all of his image in them. He wants them to walk into true holiness. He says, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel. Jezebel. Who is, what? Who's Jezebel? I mean, who names their daughter Jezebel? If you know anything, of the, that's an Old Testament joke, by the way. Uh, so scholars don't believe this woman actually was called Jezebel. They think this is a sort of nickname, a code word, because as you know from the Old Testament, Jezebel was one of the most wicked women ever to feature in Scripture. Uh, she was born of a foreign king. She married King Ahab, who was king of Israel. It was later said of Ahab that he was the worst king that Israel ever had. Israel had some bad kings. So Ahab really took things downhill. Uh, and it was due, in large part, to his wife Jezebel. She came in and she sought to uh, sort of unite the worship of a foreign god, this guy called false god called Baal, uh, with the worship of Yahweh, the true God. She thought she could marry the two. She thought she could compromise and sort of keep everyone happy. And yet, it was evil in the Lord's sight. It led to terrible results, consequences, judgment from God. This was Jezebel, who was also involved in witchcraft, we're told. So she was leading them into spiritual adultery, and she was also involved in witchcraft. She wasn't fantastic for Israel. That's the story of Jezebel in the Old Testament. Jesus uses her name because he knows what this will conjure in their minds. They're biblically minded folk. And what he's saying is, church, you're tolerating this woman. What was so bad about this woman? Well, this woman calls herself a prophet. She hasn't been appointed by the leadership. She hasn't been recognized. She is a self-appointed leader within the church. She is sort of standing up as if she is God's spokeswoman. And yet Jesus says here, I don't recognize her. And by her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. What's this going on about? Well, in Thyatira, it was a, a city. It was a, the, the most minor of the cities that gets written to by Jesus of the seven letters. But it was big into textiles. They sold a lot of sort of cloth and they dealt a lot in purple dye, for those of you who want to know. Uh, so they were quite big on the scene in that way. And they would have within the city, they had a lot of guilds 
So it was like a union where they would meet, the workers would unite, and these guilds would sort of enable people to have jobs, keep their jobs, stay in a union of sorts. And each guild worshipped a different god. And when those guilds would meet, they would, they would have a feast, they'd sort of offer a sacrifice to this false god, then they'd eat the meat, they'd drink some wine, and they'd engage in, well, you can imagine, sort of a game of wife swap. And it was like swingers, basically, back then. And this is what everyone belonged to. And the problem for the Christian is they're thinking, I, I need to eat, I need to provide for my family, I need to give to church. If I don't join in, if I walk away from that with the guild, I'll be chucked out, I could lose my job. It was real stuff. Standing up for Jesus back then could have meant a lot. And so what this woman Jezebel, what many think she was doing, was coming along saying, it's all right. It's okay. You can have the best of both worlds. You can love Jesus. You can worship Jesus. But you can also do this stuff, the stuff that's required at the guilds. Why? I mean, any good heresy needs enough true theology to enable the church to take it in. Well, she was saying things like, because we're spirit, you know, what we do with our bodies, the flesh, doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter if you sleep around a bit. It doesn't matter if you commit adultery at these things. That's not you. That's not your heart. That's not your spirit. Your spirit, not flesh. We're under grace, not law. It's not about how we live. You know, you're forgiven. You're covered. You've got, you know, carte blanche to do whatever you like. It's grace, not law. Truism, stuff that sounds true. And then her saying, well, and also, we could really do with your money as the church. I hope you clocked it during the piece, the slide. No, teasing. She was saying these things. She was leading the church into error. And as Jesus says, she was causing some of Jesus' servants to commit sexual immorality. And the Lord hated it. The Lord hated this compromise. He hated this sin. And yet to her, to those who joined in, it would have felt, this is fine. This feels good. This feel, I'm happy. It seemed to be satisfying both things. Going to come to church on Sunday, worship Jesus. Rest of the week, I'm in the guild. I'm doing my thing. That's the situation. That's what was going on in Thyatira. And that's what Jesus comes to correct and to confront. And he warns them. He says, you know, this woman who's been doing this, I've reached out to her. I've called her to repent. I've had patience with her. And yet she's not doing it. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. She's wanted a bed of different types with so many other lovers, with her adultery. I'm going to put her on a different kind of bed. She threatens, he threatens her. He threatens to judge those who commit adultery with her and cause them to suffer. It's tough stuff, isn't it? It's hard reading. I mean, I read this letter, came to it this week. It was like, where are we now? Okay, which one's that? And I was like, oh, gosh. It's not often that you hear Jesus threatening to kill people's children, is it, in the Scriptures? Well, this isn't literally her children. She didn't, you know, have a couple of children, you know, Jeffrey and Margaret. I'm going to take them out. This is like a, a metaphor for her disciples, 
for those who follow her teaching. Okay, this is like, I'm going to put this teaching to death. I'm going to quash it. Why? Because it's too dangerous for the church. You know, the greatest threat that faces the church isn't the enemy from without. It's not persecution that comes from out there. It's always the enemy from within. It's always false teaching. It's always the wolf who comes dressed in sheep's clothing. You know that kid's song? Wolfie, Wolfie, who are you? Who are? It's that guy or girl. That's the greatest threat. That's the one Jesus has come to confront here. Because he knows it could be deadly to the church. Because he's holy. And he must be righteous and he must do what's right and he must judge. And we saw last week that he's the one from whose mouth comes the the double-edged sword. The sword of his word. And he will swish it back and forth. And if you're in the way of that, God help you. But he does it because he loves us. He disciplines us. He prunes us. And it might hurt. And this message tonight, these words might cut us. They might challenge us. But that's what God does. He calls us to repent. He calls us to line up with his word, not to get his word to line up with our lives. That's what repentance looks like. It's getting in line with God, not saying to God, get in line with me. And this is the situation in Thyatira. This is the situation for us today. He comes to say, you're doing the right things. I commend you for that. Your actions, how you live, but your beliefs, they're going off off beam. They're risking everything. And you need to stop tolerating that. Do you know what? It's amazing to see that it's possible for us to be more tolerant than God. Can you believe that? You think, surely tolerance is the great virtue in our society. You know, 21st century London, tolerance is the overarching virtue for everything. Tolerate everyone. Offend no one. G.K. Chesterton said tolerance is the virtue for the man or woman who lacks conviction or convictions. And Jesus rebukes them, saying, you're being too tolerant here. Give sin no quarter. Don't give it the time of day. Root it out. Cut it out. This, this sexual immorality, this idolatry, this spiritual adultery, going after other things ahead of me, this will not bode well for you. This will lead to me removing the candlestick from where you are, that city. We know several of these churches, well, they were doing well at the time, but where are they now? They don't exist. They fell away. They walked away. They they went off target. Jesus judged them. The candlestick was removed. Jesus loves his church too much not to come to correct, to admonish, to rebuke. That's what he's doing here. How's this relevant for us? I mean, Tim and I aren't up here speaking about guilds and how you should get involved and have a great night Thursday night at the guild. It's fine. Just remember, you can do both. You know, we're pretty on target, I, I think. Please, correct us if we're wrong. You know, we hold to an orthodox view of sexuality, of marriage, that sex, the place for it is within a covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. That's our view. 
St. Dee's view. That's the church's view. It's always been the church's view. So we're, we're okay on that front uh, here. But what about further afield? What about the wider church that we belong to? What about the Anglican church? Now, yesterday, I was driving back. I played a game of football. Drove back, stopped at a supermarket off the A4. And I was driving in, trying to look for a car parking space. And I looked right. And it was the Archbishop of Canterbury right there with his wife getting into their car. And immediately, the opportunity started thinking, like, how can I manufacture a conversation? Some sort of meeting, you know, some sort of selfie, that sort of thing, like we all do, right? Uh, so I quickly parked up. And anyway, made my line of uh, walk into the uh, supermarket. I mean, I've met, I've met him a few times. He employs me. I mean, he employs Tim and I. Uh, he's our boss, so he should know who I am. Uh, so I went over to his car. Actually, he used to be a part of the church I was at before here. Um, so I did meet him. I preached at him, not at him. I preached to him once. He offered me feedback. That's another story. I, I parked. I parked in the car park, and I wandered over to the car. He was just about to get on the driver's side, so it's like, you know, just slight, quick. And I was like, slight drizzle. I was like, hello, Archbishop Justin. And he's like, Hello there. <laughs> Stocking up? <laughs> yes. Good to see you. Bye. <laughs> I mean, it's a terrible story. I mean, it's just made for an awful anecdote. I mean, I was just gutted, like, what? There could be more. No, that was it. But the head of the Anglican Communion, so much resting on his shoulders, the, the wider church, What's going on? There are conversations happening at the moment, or will be in the future, about sexuality in the church, about the place of, of gay marriage within the church. Should it be allowed? Should it be legalized within canon law for priests, ministers, to be able to marry two men, two women? Should it be all right for, for two married men? to be priests in God's church? Real questions. I, I don't want to get into that now, other than to say this stuff, 2,000 years ago, this stuff is alive and relevant today. What does Jesus think about it? Well, you must wrestle with the scriptures and look into it yourself. But from what I read in Thyatira, I read of a holy God, a holy Lord, who's calling his church to be holy. Because he is holy. He's calling them to be holy simply because that's our call. And he wants his church to reflect him. Finally, as I come into land, be holy. Why? Because it's worth it. Because it's worth it. To those who are victorious, do my will to the end. I'll give authority over the nations. Where do you fix your eyes? What motivates you to keep going with Jesus when it gets tough? Sometimes it's enough to think next week it'll be better, next month, next year. But sometimes all you can hold on to is God's kingdom is coming. Jesus is coming. And his reward is with him. Jesus says, I'll give authority over the nations. If we follow him, if we stay true to him, if we pursue holiness, keep the faith, we will rule. We will reign. I've no idea what that looks like. I'm slightly terrified by the prospects. I mean, you know, I'll get the Isle of Wight or something, and someone else, one of you will get, you know, Africa. 
Um, but what, I mean, how? But we will have authority over the nation. We're going to rule. How many of us rule in this life? How many of us are trodden down and just oppressed? How much of the Christian church is, is persecuted, is opposed, is locked up, is killed? And yet in the age to come, Jesus says, I'll give authority over the nations. You will rule. You will reign. You will judge. Because you'll be with me. And I'm the king of all the earth. You will rule. And I will also give them the morning star. What's the morning star? Well, Revelation later refers to the morning star as being Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less. The morning star is Jesus Christ. It's him saying, you will have a share in all that is mine. All that I have, I give to you. The vows you hear at weddings, at marriages. Jesus is saying, that will be yours. The great exchange. You bring your poverty to me. I will give you my wealth. You bring your sickness. I will give you my life. You bring your death. I will give you my resurrection. I will give you the morning star. I will give you myself. And we will be together for all of eternity. You will sit on that throne with me. Why be holy? Be holy because Jesus is holy. Be holy because we're called to be holy. Be holy because it's worth it. It's worth it. Amen.